Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. This is God's word. Thanks, Cheryl, for reading scripture for us. We are in Psalm 99. Um, well, good morning, everyone, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. My name is Slotming, and I'm one of the elders here at GBC. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege to actually bring God's word to you for the very first time, and I'd like to thank my fellow uh, elders and also many who knew about this and prayed for me uh, during this week as well. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous, but I figured that you're probably equally as nervous seeing me up here. Uh, so we are, we are, we are all good. <laughs> uh, no, no World Cup references. Um, there's another topic that is, if you're in the tech world, that has kind of took everybody by storm, right? And this thing is called Chat GPT. I don't know if you're in the tech world, you probably know Chat GPT is a chat service uh, powered by very advanced artificial intelligence. Uh, it has garnered over 1 million users in just a short one-week span that, uh, when it was released just about a week ago. Uh, so if you don't know, ChatGPT is actually just like a supercharged version of Siri if you have an iPhone or a supercharged version of an Android uh, assistant. Uh, it's able to kind of intelligently you know, hold conversations much better than Siri or, or, or Android assistant, provide answers in uh, more coherent ways than just a simple Google uh, search. Uh, in fact, this new software is so kind of revolutionary that uh, you, know, you can even ask you to write essays you can ask it to uh, write song lyrics, among other things. In fact, a brother, knowing that I'm going to preach this week, actually uh, sent me an article that, uh, where, where someone actually asked ChatGPT to write a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't worry, I didn't, I didn't ask you know, ChatGPT to write my sermon. Uh, I did it the old-fashioned way, uh, which makes me actually acutely aware of the time and the humility uh, and the amount of work that is needed to prepare a sermon uh, that reflects God's truth and at the same time encourage the congregation in the faith. So my appreciation goes out to all our pastors uh, who do this week in and week out. Uh, as you notice, they, uh, we let them take a break during December. <laughs> no, but um, just uh, want to uh, give my appreciation to the pastors and also to everyone who has been uh, praying as well. Uh, let us pray as we look into today's passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to listen to your word. We pray that you will humble us, open the eyes of our heart through your word so that we may worship you and exalt you for who you are, a God who is holy and just and worthy to be exalted on high. Lord, give us the 
encouragement through your word to be able to see not just your holiness and justice, but also your mercy through Jesus Christ, in whom we have received the righteousness through faith in his death and resurrection. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time, we are coming to the end of our Advent uh, sermon series from Psalm 96 to 100. Uh, we started Psalm 96, uh, we start 96, and then next week at Christmas, uh, Caleb is going to conclude with Psalm uh, 100. This group of Psalms uh, from 93 to 100, you know, in the Bible, is a collection of Psalms that celebrate and proclaim uh, God's rule and kingship over the earth. Uh, these Psalms describe the character of God's rule over the earth, uh, and you can see that God rules with majesty and power. They also describe God's uh, attributes. You can see that He's a righteous God, a God, uh, a just God, and also a merciful God. And lastly, these Psalms describe the universal praise and universal adoration of God uh, because of His sovereign rule over the earth and also His justice, His love, and His mercy. Not only do they describe the universal praise, but they also prescribe, they also command uh, praise and worship from His people. Uh, indeed, we are to praise, we are to rejoice because the Lord our God is King. And hence the title of our sermon series, uh, Rejoice. Last week, Pastor Ollie preached on uh, Psalm 98. And if you remember, it's a psalm that's declaring you know, that the whole world rejoices because of who God is, what He has done, and what He will do. It's quite a boisterous psalm, it's quite a noisy psalm commanding people to rejoice and to declare that all of creation will make a joyful noise uh, to Him. We are in Psalm 99 today, where it's a little bit different. It has a more reverent tone. It asks us to consider the holiness of God, which uh, provides a sobering view on who um, God is. In fact, you can see um, that the word holy is He, or the word God is holy, is repeated three times, and therefore I have titled the sermon, Holy, Holy, Holy. You can see it in verse 3, verse 5, and also in verse 9. If you have your Bibles, you can just look that up. To truly worship God actually requires us to know who He is and what is His character. The contrast here between Psalm 98 and 99 is important to help us grasp the depth and the meaning of what true worship really is. To worship with just only joy and shouts will risk our worship being you know, fluff and rather shallow. But on the other hand, to worship with just the sober reminder of our holy God will risk it being you know, sad, ominous, and lack the true joy in which each Christian should have in Christ. And so we need both. So how do we worship God with true reverence? Jesus said in John 4, verse 24, that those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship must be grounded in the truth of who God is. Only when we can grasp who we are in relation to who God is, then we can truly rejoice in spirit and sing out in joyful songs and praise. And we always need this constant reminder of who God is because we often 
forget and take God for granted. As Yanadi has prayed, we steal God's reign. We want to rule our own lives and be our own gods. And so today, the big idea for Psalm 99 is actually the following. God's, for you, those who are taking notes, God's holiness in His power, authority, justice, and mercy should lead us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I've broken down the, the sermon into three points corresponding to each section of the psalm. Each section actually ends with, as I mentioned before, the word, holy is He. And it concludes with the call to exalt and worship God because He is holy. So the first section is worship our holy God in His sovereign power and authority. That's verses 1 to 3. Second, worship our holy God in His justice and righteousness. And lastly, in verses 6 to 9, worship our holy God in His mercy. Before we go deeper into the text, we kind of have to answer the question, right? What is holiness? What does it mean to say that God is holy? There are many things in the Bible that is referred to as holy. Here are some examples. Holy bread, holy Sabbath, holy place, holy nation. What does it mean for something to be Holy. Well, the first idea that uh, most people, you know, will have about holiness is the idea of something or someone that is pure, someone that is free from any stain, someone who is unadulterated, and someone who is clean. You know, the, the Bible uses the word holy in this way, uh, for sure, to mean purity or moral perfection. Um, but I'm sure there is more to that. In fact, when the angel of the Lord sang Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty in Isaiah 6 as well as Revelation 4. Surely it must mean more than just perfect, perfect, perfect or pure, pure, pure. The main idea of the word holy is being separate or set apart or being distinct and unique. So our God is holy carries the meaning that He is separate and different from us created beings. We are created beings and He's the uncreated one. It emphasizes the distance between God and man and also emphasizes His infinite value. Uh, and this difference is not just in terms of purity, in that God is pure and perfect while man is not. It also emphasizes the difference that God is infinite while man is finite. We are created beings and God is not. He's the uncreated one. John Piper, uh, in defining what holiness is, uh, says, God's holiness is His infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that He is and who by grace made Himself accessible. And he repeats it, his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is. And so in this psalm, the repeated statement of he is holy in each section, at the end of each section, 
ensures that we are not casual in the way we approach God. The word holy is reserved for God. But as I've shown, you know, other things are also referred to as holy, but only because they are set apart and dedicated for God's use. So as we look into these three sections of this psalm which describe the different aspects of God's holiness, it's helpful to think what sets God apart in these three different areas. So number one, we worship our holy God in His sovereign power and sovereign authority. This psalm begins with a declaration that God reigns, uh, the Lord reigns. Allow me to read the first three verses again. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise you, your great and awesome name. And it ends with, Holy is He. So we know the Lord is king and he rules, how different is his rule? How is his rule holy? Let me suggest a few observations that we can make. Uh, The first observation, verse 1, it says, let the peoples tremble. At the end of verse 1, it says, let the earth quake. This tells us that God is all-powerful, that even the earth will quake at His command. He has control over the whole earth and all the elements that is in it. And all creation responds in awe. They tremble and shake. It's good to remind us that in the Old Testament that no one could be in the presence of God or see God and still be alive or still live. This is because the gulf or the chasm between God and sinful man is just too much. You know, in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses wanted to see God's glory, God told him specifically that no one can see God and live. That's verse 20 in Exodus 33. So God had to place Moses in the cleft of the rock. By the way, that reminds me of, uh, of the hymn, right? He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. He covered Moses with his hand and he passed by and only after that he was allowed to see God's back because he was walking away. Such is the holiness of God. The prophet Isaiah, uh, when he saw the vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, we read that the foundations shook and trembled and when Isaiah realized that he is in the presence of a holy God who is holy, 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 three times holy. He fell to his knees and said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah realized when he encountered God, he fell on his knees. And he immediately sees the vast chasm, the vast gulf between him and the holy God, between a sinful man and a pure and holy God. So we see that people respond in reverence and fear 
when encountering this God who is king over all creation. Second observation is that he is exalted over all the peoples in verse 2. This observation points to God's supreme reign over all his people and all the earth. Not only does he bring trembling and quaking among his creatures and creation, our God is one who is king and rules over all his people. There is no exception. He says all of his people. The extent of his kingdom is basically all his creation. Every nation and every tribe belong to his rule and dominion. So he is indeed separate and different from all other kings of this earth because the dominion of all earthly kings have limited scope, limited physical extent, as well as limited time. No earthly king has ruled beyond his time. The scope of God's kingdom is universal and is beyond time. And he calls us to worship him in his sovereign power and authority. Friends, do we have the correct view of God? How do we respond to God's holiness in his power and authority over all the earth and all his creation? I think there are several questions we can ask ourselves. The first one is, you know, how do we approach God knowing that he is holy? I think to be honest, uh, I sometimes treat God rather casually, you know, taking his grace and mercy for granted. In my mind, I often think of him as uh, someone who listens to my prayers and answers them and gives me what I want, almost like Santa Claus. Uh, as mentioned earlier, the act of worshipping God is done in both spirit and in truth. Knowing who God is in that he is infinite should really humble us and bring us to our knees in awe of him. Approaching him should instill a sense of fear, not the fear of being punished, but the fear of the Lord. The fear of being punished alone can lead to uh, legalism, you know, for which we have kind of so extensively covered in our sermon series on Galatians. But a healthy fear of God is one that acknowledges that he is holy, he is so far above us, so perfect and pure, that we are completely and utterly dependent on him for our existence, but yet God is gracious to bring us salvation in spite of our sinfulness. That's the attitude. That's the attitude that makes the gospel so powerful. We'll talk more about the gospel in the later part of this sermon. But Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For sure, God listens and answers our prayers, but He's far more than that. He's holy, He's different, He's way above us. So God is God, and we are not. And so this actually frames our wisdom for daily living. Second question, how do we respond to his reign um, in this world? The psalm says the Lord reigns. It begins with that. Do we really believe that God reigns even now in this world? Sometimes for me it's hard 
to see how God is reigning over us in this world with all the evil and the suffering, wars, never-ending wars, and conflict. How is God even allowing this to happen if He is really fully in control and ruling over all the earth? Well, for one, learning more about God through His Word has helped me to understand how God works. And it gives me confidence that God is in absolute control and reign over everything, even now. I think, take for example, uh, the series on Genesis that we have gone through where God worked out His purposes even through the sins of His people. How He's weaved His purposes of redemption through murder, through deceit, through strife, through envy. And so studying His Word and understanding who He is and how He works is key to seeing the world that we live in with the right perspective. Friends, we're all living in that whole story arc of the Bible. God is not done yet. He's still working out His purposes and His will. And that's why it's so, so important to meet uh, together with fellow believers, to study His Word, to encourage one another in the faith, so that we together will understand God more and be able to help each other to see God's sovereign power at work in our lives and also through each other's lives. Together we remind each other of the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 46, verse 8 to 11, God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of all, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from the far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So we help each other remember God's word. God's sovereignty, even though sometimes we don't understand it. In verse 3, finally, of this section, the, the psalmist calls all his people to praise him, to praise his name because he is holy. And really, the only response to God's sovereign rule is to praise him for who he is because he is holy. And so we see God's holiness in his sovereignty which is universal and His presence that causes everything to tremble and quake in holy fear. So we move on to the next point, number two. Worship our holy God in His justice and His righteousness. It's taken from verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> verse 4 says, The King in His might loved justice. You have established equity you have ex executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Now these two verses describe God as one who not only exercises power and authority in His rule, but He also does what is right and fair for everyone. This is because He loves justice God is a just God, and because He's perfectly righteous 
and just, everything that He does is perfectly righteous and just. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? It means that God's rule and sovereignty is founded on justice and righteousness. The end of verse 4 says, You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Uh, Jacob, if you've you know, uh, gone through the Genesis series, you know that it's actually referring to Israel, um, God's chosen people. So in other words, God has established the foundations of justice and righteousness in the nation of Israel and also executed justice. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the famous 19th century English uh, preacher in his commentary on this psalm, uh, you know, he likens the establishment and the execution of justice in God's kingdom to the legislative and executive branch of uh, the judicial system. In this case, both the legislative and executive branches are, are, are righteous because God is righteous. So in other words, the laws and the execution of these laws are perfect from God. So how is God's holiness reflected in this justice and righteousness? Again, we kind of have to contrast this and see this, that with earthly kings and rulers of the ancient worlds, most kings, or in our context, even government leaders, ignore and even defy justice. They oppress and marginalize the poor and they were driven out of self-interest to preserve their power and authority to get gains for themselves. And that's why God is holy in His justice and righteousness because He is different, He's separate, He's perfect, unlike human rulers. But as we think for ourselves about this justice and righteousness of God, it is actually both good news and bad news. For us, we kind of establish that God is perfectly just, He's perfectly righteous. So the good news is that, in some sense, it's comforting for us because we know that due to God's perfect justice and righteousness, all the wrongs in this world, He will make it right. All the injustice that we see will be made just, and all the wrongs done against us, God will make it right. We don't have to live life looking for justice to be done because we know ultimately God will bring justice and righteousness to everything in this world. We know that God will do it because it is part of uh, His holiness. I mean, we can also see it from many instances in the Old Testament where God has brought down nations who were against righteousness and the justice of God. That's the good news. But there's also a bad news, right? Because we ourselves are not perfect. We ourselves are not just or righteous. We are sinners, and because of that, we are under that same judgment of God's perfect justice and righteousness. None of us can stand before God and say that we are perfectly righteous just as we are not holy. But God is holy. His justice and righteousness exposes who we really are. We are sinners in need of rescue. And God is holy and we are not. 
And so even Israel, God's chosen people, is not spared from God's perfect justice and righteousness. God has sent prophets to warn His people to obey Him. You can see that over throughout the Old Testament. But we know that it fell on deaf ears most of the time. And at the time of the writing of this psalm, Israel was in exile in Babylon because of their disobedience toward God. But yet in verse 5, you can see God's people are commanded to exalt the Lord and worship at His footstool because He is holy. It's quite similar to the end of the first section in verse 3. The response to God's holy justice and righteousness is really to worship Him and in acknowledging that who we are in relation to who God is. And notice here in verse 5, it says we are to worship at His footstool, which is a sign of lowliness and humility. Indeed, that's the posture that we are to adopt when we worship the Holy God. But how can we you know, approach and worship God when we, there is such a large gap between us and sinners? There's such a large gap between sinners like us and the holy and righteous God. So this last section, you see God's answer. Worship our God in His mercy. Verse 6 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger to their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. I've titled this section about to be about God's mercy because if you remember in the first two sections we learn that there's such a huge gap between us and God. We saw that man cannot see God face to face because of his holiness. It would be too great uh, of a gap for sinful man to see God and not die. Second section also saw that God's justice and righteousness is too perfect because man is sinful and and, and righteous. But yet God now is merciful and He provided a way for His people to have access to Him by preparing mediators who would act between the infinite God and the holy God and the sinful man. So we see this in verse 6. Verse 6 mentions about Moses, Aaron and Samuel. Who are these three people? In fact, if you read, uh, all three of them actually stood on behalf of God's people and pleaded for them. In fact, the common thread among these three priests was that they were mediators between God and His people when His people sinned against God at really crucial points in the history of Israel. First, we see Moses. Uh, This is from Exodus. Moses was up at Mount Sinai. He was receiving the law from God uh, when His people actually down uh, at the bottom of the mountain made a golden calf as an idol. Remember that? And they worshipped uh, that golden calf instead of worshipping God. And you might think, oh, you know, these guys are crazy, right? I mean, even after God had brought them out of, Israel, of Egypt, 
uh, from slavery and performed many miracles like uh, you know, parting of the Red Sea, bringing the plagues and so on. Yet God's people sinned. But Moses in Exodus 32 interceded. He pleaded on behalf of the people of God to spare the people from God's wrath. And so in Exodus 32, verse 14, it says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. And so God relented because of, God, of Moses' plea. Aaron, on the other hand, was also a priest during Moses' time. Um, we similarly saw he also stood in the gap between God's judgment and his people when they sinned. And this is in... Numbers chapter 16, you can read that on your own time. We see Aaron interceding when God was punishing his people for a sin they committed uh, by sending a plague. And Aaron made an atonement of incense, and because of this, the plague was stopped. Samuel, on the other hand, is similar as well. He prayed for uh, Israel. Uh, during Israel's sin of idolatry against God, and God was going to send the Philistines to punish his people. So we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that Samuel prayed and the Lord answered his prayer. And so Moses, Aaron, Samuel, they were all mediators between a holy God and man. All three of them were called, uh, all three of them called on God's name and God answered them. In this psalm, in verse 7, we see God speaking to them through that pillar of cloud and teaching His people through them. And through these mediators, God granted His people access to Him even though they were sinful. He granted His people forgiveness, as we can see in verse 8. But yet God is still fully just and sins still need to be dealt with because verse 8 says because, uh, that God is an avenger of their wrongdoings. So even though God forgave them, at the end of verse 8 it says God is still an avenger of their wrongdoings. Sins still need to be dealt with for God to be fully just and fully merciful. And so God forgives His people. That restores the relationship between God and man and sin still has its consequences. And so, for, for example, Moses, because of his sin, you can read that in Exodus, he was not able to enter the promised land, even though he had led God's people out of Egypt, and he was also God's appointed mediator. So these mediators, these three mediators, actually point to a perfect mediator, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mediator that was promised by God. He is the only perfect and sinless mediator and he bridges the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And so we ask the same question, right? How is God's holiness then reflected in this third section, which is God's mercy? How is it reflected in his mercy and his provision of a mediator? Again, we see this distinct way in which God is different from other earthly beings, even those sins of man meant that the fellowship between God and man is broken, but God took the initiative to provide a mediator. He's merciful to forgive sinners so that the relationship between God and man can be restored. Even the response of his people 
get more and more personal as you can see the progression of these three sections. Remember in verse 3 and verse 5, the first two sections, it ends with, holy is he. But now this third section, the psalmist ends with, the Lord, our God, is holy. Pointing out that this God is a personal God who seeks a relationship with his people. This is so distinct and separate from other gods that we see as well. So, beloved brothers and sisters, we are no different from the Israelites. We can't stand in front of a holy God and still live. We need a mediator. And we do have that someone who is greater than Moses, Aaron, and Samuel combined. He is Jesus Christ, who is the perfect mediator because he represents a sinful people before a holy God. He is our great high priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 16, 14 to 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus Christ, who is God, became one of us. He was fully man and yet he was without sin. And because he had no sin, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice and took on the penalty for our sin. So we can with full confidence approach this throne of God the throne of our holy God and dwell with Him because of what Christ has done. For our friends who are here, who are not believers, I urge you to consider who God is and who is Jesus Christ. You've heard today that God is holy because He's perfectly just, He's perfectly righteous, He's perfectly powerful and also perfectly merciful. We are His created beings. We are sinful and we cannot dwell with Him because of the sin in our lives. And therefore, we need a mediator who can stand in the gap between us and the Holy God. If you believe this, then all you have to do is to acknowledge that you have sinned and have not obeyed God perfectly. All you need to do is believe that Jesus is our mediator, and Jesus is the promised deliverer who came to pay the price of your sin and your disobedience. Confess that Jesus is Lord and your Savior. For my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, I've asked a couple of questions just now in the first section. I don't know if you remembered it in terms of how we should be responding to God in His sovereign power and authority. The first question was, how should we approach and worship our God? How should we approach our God who is holy? And the conclusion I made then was that just based on the first section alone, that we should approach Him with awe and with reverence because He is holy and we are not. There's this big gap between an infinite God 
and finite man. Well, now I may add that we can also approach him with confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done. We approach God with both awe and trembling and reverence, but with full confidence that Jesus Christ has made us righteous in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. Second question was, how do we respond to his reign in this world? Well, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, God is sovereign. He has mentioned that. He is ruling over this world even now. But because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, God rules in our hearts and reigns in us so that we are no longer slaves to sin and are free to follow under God's authority. And that's what ultimately God's reign is. As the familiar Charles Wesley hymn that we have sung maybe two weeks ago, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, in the second stanza, so aptly put it, Born thy people to deliver, Born a child, yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thy all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Indeed, the Lord reigns. Um, the cross of Jesus Christ is where the perfect justice of God and the mercy of God meets. Only in Jesus' crucifixion, death and resurrection, we can see both justice and mercy be fulfilled in one person. Our God is a holy God. I, I started off this sermon you know, kind of contrasting between the previous psalm of rejoicing with this Psalm 99 of sober reminder of God's holiness. Let me end with another contrasting observation. Psalm 97 begins just like Psalm 99. It begins with, the Lord reigns. But the contrast is in the following statement. Psalm 97 says, the psalmist writes, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. But in Psalm 99, it says, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble and the earth quake. And so we are told to worship God with both trembling and rejoicing. How do we do that? Only in Jesus Christ we can do so because without Christ, we, there will be no rejoicing. There will only be trembling and quaking. So beloved, let us worship our holy God with our lips and our lives with both reverence and rejoicing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. You are a holy God who is infinite and so far above us, and yet you have chosen to send your Son, Jesus Christ, into this earth to be our mediator, so that through him and through his death and resurrection, we can be reconciled to you even now. Thank you for this privilege. May we live our lives worshipping you in all that we do with both a reverent awe of you and yet rejoicing because of what Christ has done. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.